1: from kqed
0: welcome back to
2: forum i'm michael krasny a new kqed investigation finds that more than a third of senior care facilities are at heightened risk for wildfires and many aren't ready for emergencies That risk will continue to grow as California's population ages. Officials estimate that a decade from now, there will be 8.6 million residents age 65 and older, increasing the demand for home health and long-term care services. The coronavirus pandemic makes it even harder for facilities to prepare for wildfire emergencies. Efforts many say were insufficient. Joining us now to talk about KQED's investigation is Lisa Pickoff-White, KQED's data journalist. Welcome, Lisa. Lisa, are you with us?
3: I am. Good morning.
2: Good morning to you. And we'll also say good morning to Molly Peterson, KQD science reporter. Good morning, Molly. Good morning. And let me congratulate both of you along with uh, April Dembowski for this report and this investigation, which is really not only important, but highlights what really needs to be done. And you did your person work here with Cal Matters, So kudos to you all on this. Uh, Let me begin, Molly, with you. And let's talk about uh, the fact that California is getting older faster than the rest of the states. And the rising demand for care facilities that I mentioned is borne out by the fact that thousands of these facilities are at risk and and the emergency preparedness laws are simply weak and aren't enforced.
1: Yes, it's really complicated in part because we have two main kinds of facilities in California, right? We've got these nursing homes that are seen as healthcare facilities. They are regulated federally and by California. And then we have assisted living facilities. And those are facilities where people just get help with the daily tasks of living. And so many people live in those as well who have medical needs, but those are not regulated as healthcare facilities. And those are the ones that April Demboski, in fact, spent a lot of time thinking about because she reported on the abandonments in Santa Rosa.
2: Well, there aren't really any state agencies taking responsibility for checking these numbers, and that includes old people living alone, doesn't it?
1: Well, that's absolutely true. And I know that um, Lisa knows quite a bit about uh, the numbers of people that we estimate to be living alone in the state. Um, in terms of the, you know, both the California Department of Public Health and the Department of Social Services are supposed to visit nursing homes and assisted living respectively. Um, Those visits have been slowed, if not stopped, by the pandemic because there's been this effort to keep people who aren't absolutely necessary out of these facilities for the general safety of folks. In addition, we looked at how often these facilities are cited for not being prepared, and that's where we found some surprising results.
2: Uh, and actually very disturbing results and Lisa you begin the investigation with a narrative about a Sebastopol couple during the Tubbs fire. They were racing the couple's uh, names are Kathy and Mark Allen Racing a Santa Rosa to an assistant living facility to really get his mother out of there and uh, there was no power There was no overnight staff. There was almost 62 people in their rooms alone No evacuation plan many of these people had dementia and many of them had to be carried out in wheelchairs This is just unacceptable under any circumstances <laughs>
3: Yes, and that those fires were really something that inspired me to work with Molly and April, and also Cal Matters to really look at this. You know, like Molly and, and many people in California, I've been covering these fires very closely since twenty seventeen, and just something that's been impossible to miss has been the age of people who have died in these fires, and it really led us to question who is responsible for this. And that's something we also heard from a lot of people, for instance, like Randy Odette, uh, whose mother is 96, suffers from Alzheimer's, and who contracted COVID-19 in a nursing home in an area that we found is risky. The state has got to be responsible
1: for these homes. I mean, they can't help themselves, the patients, and it's really not up to the staff really up to whoever is in charge to implement them. That's what I
3: think. It's a big question.
2: I think it's also safe to say the pandemic is making things worse for monitoring and planning uh, and climate change is having a real impact as well, right?
3: I mean, that's really one of the things that really intrigued me about this, is we have just a confluence of so many things. We have an aging population. California is aging faster than the rest of the country. We have millions of people who are 65 and older in this state. At the same time, climate change is making these fires uh, worse sometimes and increasing. And also, humans ourselves are causing these fires to increase at a greater rate. At the same time, you know, now we have a pandemic, and all of these things are really showing how perhaps our our systems are where the fault lines are, where things are that we need to look at.
2: We also have, and I think it's safe to say, just in terms of the numbers, more wildland-urban interface uh, development. I mean... uh, (laughs) That just makes this just exacerbates things, makes matters worse. We got about ten thousand California long-term facilities uh, from your investigation found to be vulnerable of thirty-five percent, and that's again totally unacceptable.
3: Yeah, so we looked at about ten thousand long-term facilities, and as Molly said, you know, we looked at facilities that are regulated both by different parts of the state, uh, skilled nursing homes, where there's a lot of care, but also these assisted living facilities, and we did find that about a third of those are in these fire prone areas and to do that analysis we looked at kind of two different types of maps if you will we looked at the wildland urban interface as you said and we also looked at these state fire zones where um state scientists themselves have looked at where fire is a hazard we wanted to combine those two zones because you really need to see the wooey to see fires like what we've had in santa rosa and places like that where people and land and the sprawl and fire just all mix in very dangerous ways
2: state maps weren't enough were they really
3: no, because if you just look at the current state fire maps, they don't take into account where this kind of development occurs, what scientists call this wildland-urban interface. And so that's why we talked to scientists and mapping experts to really develop our methodology. And actually, we made a map that um, anyone can go to online to see if they or a live, loved one uh, live in a facility that's in a risky area or if their own home is.
2: Actually, you can go to kqed.org and see the work that... Uh both uh, Lisa and Molly, as well as uh, April have put together. And uh, it's work that I said is, highlights so many important things that need to be known at this point. Uh, let me go back to you, Molly. Uh, these inspectors that said in the report kind of see themselves more as consultants than they do as dispensers of citations. That is a problem as well.
1: Yeah, that specifically relates to the Department of Social Services, the state. Um, uh, agency that regulates the assisted living facilities. And we're talking about somewhere in the realm of 7,500 of them. Um, There are also these federally regulated uh, skilled nursing facilities and intermediate care facilities. And they're subject to these emergency preparedness rules that, that began being a subject of discussion in 2004 and 2005 when there were hurricanes crossing Florida, when Hurricanes Katrina and Rita happened to the Gulf Coast. And so we're talking about seeing climate change as this growing threat to nursing homes around the country. It took a long time and a lot of lobbying to get these to actually take effect in 2017, you know, just as these fires are really picking up in California. And something that's interesting to me about these emergency preparedness regulations is that theoretically these nursing homes are supposed to be prepared for all kinds of risks, it's an all hazard assessment. Um, so I, you know, so, so a couple of things there, that includes the possibility of pandemics of infectious diseases. One of the people I talked to who was uh, very prepared, had a 350 page binder, uh, was this guy, Ray Budwin, who is the director of facilities for Sequoia Living, which is a set of about three um, nursing homes and assisted living facilities in the Bay in the Mendocino. And he told me how much work it is to be prepared for multiple threats at the same time. Right now, we're talking about COVID as well as wildfires.
2: Well, there has to be more citations. There have to be more regulations going after licenses. Um, And you now have Assembly Bill 3098, which is supposed to have tougher emergency rules. Uh, What does that include? And what's the likelihood that that will change the whole scenery here?
1: Well, that did kind of amplify pre-existing requirements for emergency planning. Um, it required facilities to have uh, evacuation chairs to help people downstairs. As you recall, um, uh, in our telling, and this is a lot of this was April's work, in our telling of the Santa Rosa evacuations, um, we you know, talked about how these family members were bumping these wheelchairs downstairs to get people out evacuation chairs are these mechanisms that help people move out of facilities more quickly um, Also you know in the last five years the Department of Social Services has been inspecting more frequently and these requirements you know are tighter they're tougher than they used to be but right now the way that the Department of Social Services is using them is um, infrequently are they citing these facilities for having problems with their emergency plan? And um, when they do cite them, they say, hey, you know, we want to continue to have these facilities stay open. It also is worth saying the Department of Social Services can't issue civil penalties, can't issue fines related to a lack of emergency preparedness. And that's something we see on the federal side, too, with nursing homes. They don't treat it as an immediate harm most of the time. It's the kind of thing you can handle with some paperwork and then move on.
2: We're talking, if you just joined us, about a KQED investigation and how wildfire is endangering California seniors, that endangerment even exacerbated to a greater degree because of climate change and the pandemic. We're with Lisa Pickoff-White, data reporter and senior producer for KQED, and Molly Peterson, science reporter for KQED News. What questions do you have about the safety of seniors during a wildfire, during this pandemic? You can give us a call now, and we invite you to do that, and join us. Toll-free, 866-733-6786 is the number to call. And again, that number for your calls, 866-733-6786, or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email us with any questions you may have, forum at kqed.org. And Lisa, let me go back to you. Uh, When we're talking about seniors, we're talking for the most part about those who don't live in care homes of any kind over 65, unable to really, um, well particularly vulnerable, let me put it that way, when it comes to, to fires or when it comes to the pandemic, physically, mentally, and just in every other way, we've got about 2 million in rest homes uh, where the fires are the most formidable threat, according to the mapping that you both have done, that actually the three of you with uh, April have done. I'm just wondering if we can talk about this in, in terms of uh, what to do about low-income seniors. I mean, the projections are that there simply aren't going to be enough beds for them.
3: Yeah, well, I think what's something that I want to do too is just talk about, we looked at two different things. So we looked at um, the 10,000 long-term care homes in California, and we found that about 35% of those were in areas prone to fire. That's thousands of care homes. We also estimated, though, as you said, most people 65 and older aren't in assisted living facilities or skilled nursing homes. They're living at home. And we found about 2 million of those people are in areas that we estimate are in areas at risk of fire. And we created that estimation as well with um, CalMatters, with Lobenichu there. And as you said, you know, economics really are a part of this. We have not only an aging population, but people who are moving in some cases into these fire-prone areas because of economics, because some of these places are cheaper to live. And that's something that I've been really interested in, actually, since we've seen these fires, you know, There's a lot of reasons that people live where they do. In some cases, people move to these areas that are fire prone because they're just gorgeous. In other cases, because they live there. But people also move to some of these reasons because they're cheaper to live in a very expensive state to live. However, you know, when these places burn down, what I've seen a lot of is that we rebuild in the same place. And that's something that a lot of activists and other people that we've spoken to are starting to question. How do we live with fire?
2: That's what I was intimating before. As long as this continues, uh, we're in a kind of um, Dante's inferno here. You should forgive the metaphor. I'm wondering... Lisa, uh, we need more fines. We need more preventing unsafe facilities from accepting new patients. Uh, Pat McGinnis, uh, whom you interviewed, a nursing home advocate, pointed these things out. But they're also taking monthly fees. And they're also, in, in terms of the nursing homes, they're, um, there's a limited financial liability because you have these webs of corporations. Talk about that.
3: Yes, and actually, this is something that Molly has really looked more extensively at. It is kind of the financial setups here and and who's responsible and and who pays when when something does go extraordinarily wrong.
1: Talk about that yeah, Molly. There, okay. Molly sure, sure. I mean, there was a very influential um, law review article in the early two thousands that advocated for um, nursing home operators to keep property in a separate corporation from operations from management. And so what you're doing in that case is you're shielding each of these assets from extensive liability. So the state of California, we didn't find um, extensive fining related to these deficiencies. When these facilities, um, and I'm speaking about the California Department of uh, Public Health and nursing homes, when they get a deficiency, they're basically given the opportunity to correct it on paper with a plan of correction, and then it's considered taken care of what's interesting is that the um, uh, federal uh, health and human services office of the inspector general audited how well california's oversight system works probably not all that different from other states california does um, issue more deficiencies um, than other states but because california follows up in person just six percent of the time a lot of these deficiencies uh or deficiencies related to these same problems fire preparedness emergency preparedness remain uncorrected so when auditors um went they found a lot of problems in these facilities and the state followed up after the fact and they found that those problems persisted so there's a concern that um that finding isn't the way out of this problem and when we did this series we really tried to look at solutions that might be on multiple levels so not just within the regulatory structure but how do we think about where we live How do we think about our own risk more broadly? And that's what you and Lisa were talking about just a couple minutes ago.
2: And Molly, isn't the California Department of Public Health claiming that they're sorely lacking in not only funds, but resources?
1: They absolutely are. And of course, they're very, very stretched thin. Uh, You know, we're talking about um, systems that are not built for handling multiple disasters disasters at the same time. We hear that from the facility operators, um, and we hear that from the regulators, too.
2: I'm going to bring a caller on, and by the way, you can join us with any questions you might have at our toll free number. It's 866 733 6786. Again, that's 866 733 6786. Let's bring Ruth Ann on. Ruth Ann, good morning. Hello? Yeah, hi, Ruth Ann. Go ahead, please.
4: Oh, hi there. Thank you very, very much. I wanted to ask what, if anything, was being done. to address or assist people with disabilities. I have a spinal cord injury, and I'm wondering, am I going to get really snookered during this, or is something being done?
2: Lisa, you want to go ahead?
3: Yeah, well, you know, I think we we focus on people who are 65 and older, but so much of this applies to people with disabilities, and, you know, we've really heard a lot about, you know, who is responsible for people with disabilities. This is coming up right now with power shutoffs as well and with evacuations. And, you know, one of the things that we really found in this series is that, you know, counties and the state government know, you know, they're responsible for letting people know that an emergency is occurring and that they need to evacuate. But it's unclear often who is actually responsible for evacuating those people, for actually making sure that people can get, out of harm's way. And something that we've seen a lot of, both in reporting this series and also on reporting and power shutoffs, for instance, is that the disability community and that uh, local communities are really who's stepping up to help people. For instance, we looked at a buddy system that's being created in Grass Valley by local community members where um, someone, uh, people are literally buddied up to help each other out, to make sure that if someone, that if a fire is coming or if the power shut off, someone knows and that they know who they can go to for help or that they know who they're supposed to help to get out.
2: We're coming up on a quick break here, but Lisa, let me get a response to you from a tweet from Michael who says, fire hardening facilities, no wood frame buildings, ample sprinklers, gravity fed water supplies should help. Do they not have fire hardened facilities now?
1: I can answer that, Michael. The answer is that it depends on, in California, it depends on what the local rules are. So you have to meet the strictest rules where you are locally.
2: Okay. We'll be back in about 60 seconds. Stay tuned. If you have something you want to add here, you can join us by email or Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us forum at kqed.org or join us by phone 866-733-6786. Talking again about a KQED investigation and how wildfire is endangering California's seniors. We're talking about a KQED investigation into how wildfire is endangering California's seniors. With us, Lisa Pickoff white data reporter and senior producer for KQED, and Molly Peterson, science reporter for KQED News. And you are going to be with us as well. In fact, let me go to another caller. Jake joins us from Oakland. Jake, you're on.
5: Hi, thanks for taking my call. I am, uh, back to the point about fines, I'm concerned that anybody who's making enough money through the you know retirement homes and such is going to basically just see the fines of the cost of doing business, whereas the homes that are struggling a little bit more, the fines are going to hurt their ability to make the necessary upgrades. I think the only way that we can really approach this is if we're going to uh, expect them to make these changes, we're going to need them to, to be threatened with jail time for the owners, because otherwise we're not going to be able to, to really get these facilities to change. They're just going to keep doing what they're doing.
2: Molly Peterson, you want to weigh in on Jake's call about fines maybe not being as effective? Yeah, as well, I
1: actually, I mean, I did hear that from both patient advocates, from activists who are critical of these companies, and honestly, the you know the industry itself is critical of these fines and says, um, you know, finding us doesn't help. Um, they, of course, are asking. Generally speaking, nursing homes are asking Congress for more money. Um, In California, we've taken kind of a multi-pronged approach. We're trying to be more transparent about how these corporations are run and when they do business with their own related companies. And there's an idea that that more transparency would help. It is absolutely the case that it's a concern that finding these facilities doesn't, um, doesn't help with quality of care, patient care, blaming even administrators on duty, certainly blaming staffers. Um, you know, I, there's a story that I told on the Bay, our PQED podcast, about an evacuation in Fairfield where uh, a staffer was left on duty without adequate training um, and with keys to a car that he couldn't drive, um, and with more people than he could fit in the car when a fire was coming. And that's a, you know, that's a, that's a real, real concern. That's a tiny little six-bed facility. So, um, you know, one of the activists we spoke to, Pat McGinnis, also said. Maybe their ability to keep patients, basically to, to, to take in additional patients, should be curtailed if they can't meet a standard mm-hmm. adequately. The state of California currently says it doesn't have the power to do that. Activists say that's an incorrect interpretation of the law.
2: Well, you got about 78% of nursing homes in violation of fire safety and emergency planning standards over the past couple of years. I mean, that speaks volumes about what needs to be done. And we'll talk in a moment. I hope more about what can be done. Let me get another caller on though. Megan joins us from Tiburon. Megan, welcome. You're on the air.
3: Good morning. I just wanted to share uh, with your listeners, um, something my brother and I discovered was very helpful this last fire season. Our father lives alone in Sonoma County but we're down in Marin County. So we signed up for the Nixle alerts in Sonoma. And so when something is going on in his community, we are aware ahead of time, or as soon as we are um, alerted, and it's been able to help us plan and communicate with him more effectively.
2: Thank you for that, Megan. Uh, Glad that you were able to express that to us. And uh, brings up another point though, if I could go back to you, Lisa Pickoff-White, Sonoma, has three-quarters of the long care facilities in what are described as high fire-prone areas. Um, What would you suggest people in Sonoma can do about that? I mean, specifically, there's an ombudsman, there's all this concern about enforcement and so forth and getting inspection records uh, accessible online. But in terms of what ordinary people can do who have their loved ones uh, living under these kinds of circumstances, what options do they have?
3: Well, I want to say, you know, taking matters into our own home hands and making sure we have information is one of the best things we can do. Just like our caller, I've heard from, we spoke to one woman um, who keeps a police, who keeps a scanner actually on, you know, after recent fires for her mother uh, who lives apart from her so that she can call her mom to know if a fire is coming. And this is one of those people who started that buddy system up in Grass Valley that I was talking about. And we've seen a lot of these kinds of community groups come together where people are really trying to help each other. And as you said, we found in 23 counties in California, more than 75% of people 65 and older are living in these fire prone areas. Uh, We've also seen some technological solutions. For instance, uh, there's now technologies where, for instance, if you're hard of hearing or deaf, that might shake you out of bed so that you can get an alert. If you can't hear your phone, for instance, um, you certainly won't be able to see the flash uh, that some phones have for people who are hard of hearing. Um, We've also seen a lot of people come together to try to distribute this information in other languages. That was definitely a problem that we've seen during the North Bay fires and other fires. You know, There's just all of these populations in California where we often call them vulnerable communities and this is something I've been thinking about a lot we use that word earlier where we talk about older people who are vulnerable or the disabled or sometimes people who um are not primarily English speakers. However, what we, I feel like we found in this series is not necessarily that the people are vulnerable, but the systems are vulnerable. Often these people are very resilient. Older people have a lot of experiences that they can teach the rest of us about how to live with fire, for instance. And so, What we're really looking at are these multi-pronged approaches of living with fire. How can we strengthen the regulation? How can we really examine where we live? And how can we make sure that we can get out and our neighbors can get out when something occurs?
2: And that brings up the whole question of availability of transportation, which is a big question in this whole calculus that we're talking about. But whether you're talking about nursing homes or residential communities, all of them, at least on paper, require planning and training and fire drills. And we're just not seeing compliance.
3: Yes. And also, we do have a sheet for people who have a loved one in a care home facility that they should really check out. We came up with questions that you can ask the facility to find out what their emergency plan is, to find out what kind of vehicle they have to get out.
2: Let me bring another caller on. Erica joins us next. Erica, welcome. You're on the air on Forum.
5: Thanks for taking my call, Michael. Uh, Erica Anderson, I'm a psychologist in Berkeley, many years and I'm concerned about a resurgence of ageism in America, an issue that uh, underlies all of the ones we've been talking about today. Uh, as a young psychologist, I worked with elderly people, and I, I, I felt great disdain from my colleagues about why would I do that. And uh, I'm concerned because during the pandemic, we've seen the disparities, all the disparities, health disparities, and who, who uh, succumbs to COVID. And we've had political leaders... Uh, espouse the view that we're, we're, we can sacrifice a few older people for sake of the economy. I find this just morally reprehensible, and I'm concerned that there are too many people in America who share that kind of view, whether they say it or not. And I'll take my uh, answer off. off the. Uh, I, thank off the you area. for those
2: comments, Erica. Either Molly or Lisa want to say something about ageism and Escalating ageism well, in America or here in California? I
1: will I will say that we heard that from a lot of folks. We heard about this concern, and I think Eric is raising an excellent point. Um, you know, the state of California, the, 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 the thing I would say about that is that the state of California is facing this, um, they call it the gray wave. People don't like it when you call it the silver tsunami. But we've got this huge population of folks over 65 that's, Coming, you know that, that's coming into that age in California and like it is a, it is a societal concern that we're all going to have to deal with and have some solutions for because we've got this very real concern that we're not going to have enough places for people to live um, in these years and that people can't afford to continue to live and live safely in these years and safe from any number of things. The other thing I'd say about Erica's point, it's excellent is you know the real concern that we see about having facilities in risky areas isn't just the physical destabilization that happens when people are evacuated, um, it is also the mental destabilization. And um, we see that um, psychological first aid is a concern um, that uh, nursing homes and assisted living have to take into consideration and prepare for, because especially with uh, folks who have dementia, there are both mental and physical repercussions of moving someone
2: there are tremendous psychological effects on people of wild, with wildfires traumatic effects and not only that of course but when you think about smoke uh, and particularly those who have compromised immune systems and here's jane in fact I'll go to you on this, Molly Peterson. Jane writes, those in nursing homes with respiratory conditions face additional, potentially fatal health problems from smoke. And depending on which way the wind blows, this can be a problem even a couple of hundred miles from the fire. I'm older, live in Berkeley, have a respiratory problem and ended up in ICU for days because of the smoke from the campfire, which was 200 miles away. Molly?
1: I mean, absolutely. So uh, Ray Budwin, who is the director of facilities for Sequoia Living, who I've spoken about in uh, in this half hour, Um, And just absolutely guided me on this says he now plans to evacuate to move people when they if they have to enact an evacuation for wildfire, they're talking about 100 200 miles away so people if this isn't just a let's pick up and go down the hill to a, a hotel that we've already prearranged with. It's, it's going to be campground situations. There's going to be social distancing. And I would also say that with the heat, we're looking at multiple potential impacts. Um, so the heat really was what caused a great number of deaths in Hollywood Hills, Florida, a few years ago after a hurricane. And the facilities didn't have enough backup power. That's why we've got um, in California, Hanabeth Jackson, who's a state Senator is proposing 1207, SB 1207, which would require facilities, nursing homes in particular, to have 96 hours of backup power so that people can be kept at a comfortable temperature and their medications and their machines can continue to work.
2: Well, a specific question, and I'll go to you on this also, Molly, from Paul, who says, I work in a local emergency department. And during the Santa Rosa fires, we received about 20 residents of a memory care center who well, the owner said they couldn't care for. Is this an acceptable emergency evacuation plan by state and federal standards?
1: Uh, you'd have to ask the state that question in particular, but the answer is clearly no. Clearly, um, yeah. you, clear You know, when I reported on heat um, for KQED a couple of years back, um, I did find some heat-related deaths in nursing homes um, that were not in- as far as I can tell, deeply investigated by the California Department of Public Health, we heard from emergency departments at that time, too, that they were getting calls from facilities saying, "Hey, we're really hot in this facility. Can we just bring people to the to the emergency room?" And you know the emergency departments were saying, no, we we're already seeing heightened traffic from the general population of all the people who are vulnerable to this disaster." at the same time so preparedness is just a really key strategy here
2: and i'll bring another caller on we go to mike next in daily city mike thank you for waiting you're on the air
4: hi good morning this is a very tiny portion of the problem so it's certainly not a solution but i think it'll move it in the right direction uh i think if you take what the inspectors are claiming is not their job where they say they do consulting but not violations i would call their bluff and say rather than handing out fines and sending people to jail, make it so that the facility gets its certification modified, sort of like they used to do with restaurants. In other words, the inspector would not come in and hand out a fine. He would come in and say, okay, you're gonna be a B facility instead of an A-minus facility, or a C facility instead of a B-plus facility because of how you're doing things, actually doing things on the ground. Now, that doesn't solve the problem for people who are low-income and can't afford a B facility, but at least their relatives, their caregivers, whoever is assisting them outside of the facility will have their eyes wide open and not find out two years later that the facility wasn't doing what they were supposed to do.
2: Mike, I thank you for that. Good to hear from you, and I appreciate that. And And let me go back. Lisa Pickoff white to you, can we get an example from you uh, of an assisted living or a nursing home place that really gets it right or got it right from your perspective, uh, that we're doing what they should have done and we're well prepared?
3: Well, there certainly are facilities that are prepared. And, you know, Molly um, has interviewed um, uh, Bedouin who she's spoken to uh, who has several facilities that are really going well and looking at it. And to me, it's really what we've been talking about, which is thinking about what are the different kinds of hazards? And this is, you know, we really want to give people the power to ask these questions themselves. If you have a, a loved one in a care facility, you can go to that care facility and ask them what is their emergency plan? Because especially during a pandemic, this is a lot harder to evacuate right now. So not only do you need to have a vehicle that can take All of the residents, you need to have enough staff to get them there. We need to be able to move them far away, but we need to have a place to go to. For instance, we were looking at a facility in Grass Valley, which before COVID-19 had a very substantial evacuation plan. When they called back about that, they discovered that the hotels that they thought that they would evacuate to are now booked up with nurses and other staff, for instance, treating COVID patients. And so even places that had a plan, they're having to pivot now to do something else. And so really people need to be nimble and thinking about these things, but something that all of us can do as well is ask these facilities, what's your plan? How are you going to get my loved one out of there?
2: Most of the facilities though, I think, most of the nursing homes at least are in violation of emergency preparedness. They Uh,
3: are, yes, we found 78% of them. And you know, only in 6% of, of skilled nursing homes did someone return Than to say this plan, you know, we really need to check that this is happening. And one of the very frightening things that we found in that federal audit, um, as Molly said earlier, um, was that they found that, you know, state auditors were not necessarily going back. And in fact, one of the facilities that federal auditors looked at, these audits have burned down in paradise.
2: And Molly Peterson, another listener, writes, economics really are a part of this. There's an aging population, but some people are moving into these dangerous areas because they're cheaper to live in. That was certainly true in Paradise, California.
1: Molly? You know, yeah. our um, we weren't able to do that full of an analysis to confirm that in California. I mean, what we're also seeing is kind of the rise of these climate driven disasters nationally. So in Florida, um, I keep mentioning Florida because in 2004, four hurricanes crossed the panhandle and put thousands and thousands of nursing homes and hundreds of thousands of people in danger. And that was really the birth of this kind of move of, Hey, maybe we should make these places be more prepared in Florida. And, um, and also in Texas, there's, there's some rules about this as well, but in Florida, um, you know, nursing homes and assisted livings have to run their emergency plans past local um, and state emergency managers, who then tell them whether what they're doing is plausible. So there's, there's this cross check between this healthcare facility and the emergency management system. In California, uh, you know, the uh, the emergency uh, management system, the California Office of Emergency Services. And local emergency managers don't have to see these plans ahead of time. It's strictly within the regulatory system of healthcare, So there isn't always coordination. Sometimes there are, and we see that in the North Bay in particular, Sonoma is doing more of this. But not everybody does it.
2: Well, you've been urging, and I can only echo that, the importance of uh, investigating, particularly if you have loved ones in any of these facilities, and asking questions and finding out, as much as you can online, but really when you come right down to it, I think in your report you said the backup plan for many people is just a 911 call. That's it.
1: And that's a very real fear. Yes, the person who talked to us about that was the emergency manager for Sonoma County, Chris Godley, who, you know, says that, you know, they do tabletop exercises and they talk to the larger care facilities. But you know, the overwhelming majority in particular of assisted living facilities are six beds or smaller. And those facilities don't have huge amounts of time on their hands to go to, you know, tabletop exercises. They are, you know, they're running on a shoestring staff. And there's not a huge overnight staff requirement for um, assisted living facilities overall. It's just one person who's on duty up to 100 residents.
2: And another listener writes, along with wildfires, the pandemic and climate change have also made things worse for elderly people living in risky areas, certainly That's true. And I think we've corroborated that. Uh, We've got seconds left here. Lisa Pickoff-White, can you again give some advice for people about what they can do, particularly those seniors who are living alone and not in a facility?
3: Yes, I think it really is. You know, there's a lot of different programs. There's not a a one size fits all solution. It's just about, you know, making sure that you have the information that you know you need to know when to evacuate and to know how you're going to do it.
2: Well, I thank you both, and thanks to the two of you, as well as April Domboski and Cal Matters, for this important report, investigation. And again, you can get more, invest- more information on our website, kqed.org. And we're here with you Monday through Friday, 9 to 11. And uh, up ahead, Mina Kim. Stay tuned for that. That's next. I'm Michael Krasny. Stay safe.